Recovery Elevator, episode 102. And so I would only drink after work. So I thought, like, if I just drink at night, then I'm a normal drinker. Or if I just drink on the weekends, I'm a normal drinker. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for two years, three months, three weeks, two days, 23 hours, and 23 minutes. Man, there's a lot of twos and threes in there. Michael Jordan would be proud. On today's podcast, we've got Amelia. She's 32 years old. Man, there's another three and two. She's 32 years old. She's from San Francisco, and she took her last drink 79 days ago. She drops a huge value bomb in her interview, and that's follow the drunk. I talk about it a little bit in the interview, but I'm going to cover it more in depth at the end of this podcast episode. Before we get into our topic today, I've got a big announcement. If you're looking to live a successful, happy, and prosperous life without alcohol and make a big step towards that goal in 2017, well, registration is now open for the Recovery Elevator Retreat Camp RE. We've done three previous meetups and the feedback I've gotten is that the attendees, they want more than just one night. That's why this retreat on Thursday, October 24th to Sunday, October 27th will be three nights, four days, jam-packed full of incredible workshops such as clarifying a vision for your life, how to create an action plan for long-term sobriety, optimizing your environment, the power of positive mindsets, the mindfulness way, meditation with music, hmm, yoga for recovery, the art of journaling and gratitude, cooking for emotional sobriety, health, diet, and fitness in recovery, and how to create your successful morning routine. I can guarantee you, at times your stomach will hurt from laughter. There will be tears. There will be friendships created that will last a lifetime. Included in this retreat are four days, three nights in log cabins in the beautiful Big Sky Country. All your meals are covered, plus transportation to and from the airport. This is a non-12-step based retreat, and if you tried other programs without success, this retreat could be for you. And I say could be because with it seven months out, there's already a third spot's full. This retreat will fill up, so don't wait. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash retreats, that's R-E-T-R-E-A-T-S, and claim the discount before March 1st. Okay, let's get started. Someone dear to me, that would be Ty, she edits the podcast and often tells me my clothes don't match, recommended a documentary from HBO called Risky Drinking. On the alcohol use disorder spectrum, there are six spots where you can lie. No risk, low risk, mild, moderate, severe, and death. Cue perilous music. Wait, this is a happy podcast. We don't play perilous music on it. This documentary tracks four people. One person is in the mild category, another in the moderate, another in severe, and the other one in the death category. But before we get into each person's story, I want to rattle off some facts that I learned during this documentary. Nearly 70% of Americans drink, and they all fall on the spectrum that I just mentioned. Of those, an estimated 10 to 12% have an AUD, an alcohol use disorder. And of those, only 20% get treatment. That's just a drop in the bucket. And you've heard me say this before on the podcast, I'm one of the lucky ones. Sound crazy? Well, I'm one of the 20%. That's one in five if I did my math correctly. I'm one of the lucky ones. Not only did I not drink last night, I'm probably not going to drink the rest of the day today. And I'm doing a podcast. I love doing the podcast. I love hearing from you guys out there. The deck is stacked against me, but I beat it. Well, I beat it just for today. And if I ever say the words, I got this on the podcast, just go ahead and send me a big virtual slap. In this documentary, it talks about how for most people, the AUDs develop in their 30s and 40s. Binge drinking is a huge problem. And that cohort of binge drinkers usually falls between the ages of 18 and 34. 
One in four adults in the U.S. is a binge drinker. You could have placed me in that category when I was drinking. Binge drinking accounts for half the amount of booze consumed in America. Wow. One of the counselors says, when alcohol becomes your friend, that's dangerous. When he becomes your partner, that is super no bueno. Okay, they didn't say super no bueno, I just threw that in there. Although more men than women have an alcohol use disorder, the gap in recent years has been narrowing. One in six women will develop an alcohol-related health problem, including cancer, heart disease, and liver damage. It talks about how the timing in an intervention does matter. The longer you're drinking, the worse chance you have of quitting drinking. You've heard me say that on this podcast. The best chances you have of getting sober are, drumroll, today. It talks about if your drinking progression mirrors something like this, well, you like alcohol, and then you want it, and then you need it. That also is super no bueno. This documentary talks about blackouts and describes blackouts are episodes of amnesia that disrupt the ability to form new memories while intoxicated. In Spain, I was blacking out six to seven nights a week. Yeah, I had a lot of amnesia going on there. It goes on and talks about our broken system treating addiction. It says the way we have it structured now is treatment is given in short-term bursts, which is the worst way to treat a chronic illness. Chronic meaning never going away. They also talk about what happens to the brain when we drink. When a person who has reached the stage of physical dependence has overwhelmed their brain's emotional systems, so the reason they can't stop is because they're getting relief from the terrors that are unleashed by not drinking. You're basically drinking to fix the problems that drinking created. Talks about how binge drinking, again, I've said this before, binge drinking is really, really bad. I did hear about that growing up, but kind of dismissed that. Excessive drinking causes changes in your brain. First off, you lose reward function in your brain. That's going to be dopamine. Dopamine is linked to the reward system of your brain. And the second thing, as you keep drinking, you gain activity in the stress center of your brain. Third thing is you lose the ability of your frontal cortex to work properly. That's the part of your brain that makes decisions, rational decisions like, okay, I've had nine gin and tonics, I'm not going to drive. Your thinking then is, I shouldn't drink and drive because I might spill it. No, silly, you shouldn't drink and drive because it's against the law. But yeah, the prefrontal cortex, I've made that decision a hundred times. My thought process just goes out the window. So here's the good news. You can fix the problems that drinking caused, but get ready for it, drum roll. It takes a long time, complete abstinence, and a shitload of effort. For a lot of people, they'd rather just keep drinking than put in the work. Again, the documentary profiles four people. The first one is somebody who falls in the mild spectrum. They find it pretty hard to shut it down after a couple drinks. The second one, on the moderate spectrum, they try to cut down drinking but fail. They continue to drink even though it makes them depressed and anxious. Oftentimes, they're blacking out to the point where they don't remember the evening. Next up, we've got the severe drinking, where they keep drinking even though it's causing problems with their friends and family. They experience cravings and some minor withdrawal symptoms. The last one is in the death category. Again, don't cue perilous music because we don't have it on this podcast. This is someone who has serious withdrawal systems, and they have to drink more and more to get the same effect. They are at risk of death if they stop drinking without the help of a medical professional. I'm not going to go too far into the profiles of the people because I want you to see this documentary for yourself. I highly recommend it. But the first one they talk about is Kenzie. She's probably in her mid-20s, a young professional, and is in that phase of her drinking life where, well, the party still goes on after college. I know that perfectly. I went through it, and I was able to relate to Kenzie a lot. In my unexpert opinion, but after having doing the podcast for a quick minute, Kenzie, she's not ready to quit drinking anytime soon and probably has some rough times ahead. Next up, we got Mike. He's going to fall on the moderate part of the spectrum. 
And Mike, well, he's got a beer gut and moved to the Virgin Islands to start a business. He used to be a radio announcer. And he's got his 15-year-old kid visiting him from spring break. Now, if you're a 15-year-old kid and you get to go visit your dad in the Virgin Islands for spring break, hell freaking yeah. However, didn't look so fun to me on the TV. They woke up, they went and got a fifth of rum, went back to the bar, he drank most of the day, went to the beach for uh, just a little bit, and then they took naps. Well, Mike took naps while the 15-year-old kid was like, dude, come on. My take on it, unfortunately, Mike, he's not ready to write that Dear John letter, and he's in big-time denial. He says something at the end that says, if I don't stop drinking, I'll lose my wife and kids. In my mind, was like, dude, you already have. And then he said it. He said, if I haven't already. Next up, they profiled a woman named Noelle who was part of a drinking club, is what it looked like. Maybe like the Orange County Wives Tupperware Drinking Book Club. They had waiters waiting on them, pouring glasses of wine. It was kind of strange and painful to watch, but I bet watching me pick my hideous team during my 2016 fantasy football draft would also be extremely painful to watch. One thing that stood out with this is her friends. One of her friends said, yeah, at times we sit with her on the porch the next day. She's really depressed. But we all just kind of thought this drinking problem would go away. God bless you normal drinkers. God bless you guys drink one for me. But hey, at the end of this profile, she has big news. She's now going to try a moderation management program. Fantastic. I've learned the hard way that these don't work. I've tried every moderation method in the book. In fact, I ask it every single podcast. There's been about 100 failed answers as well. This doesn't work. However, it's a step in the right direction. It quotes another one of her friends saying, We may or may not stay close friends if she quits drinking. I can tell you right now, this girl won't be your friend if you choose a life of sobriety because, the litmus test, you need alcohol just to stay in her company. Hell, I was nearly reaching for the bottle after that segment. Next up is a guy named Neil, and this one is sad. He's a 57-year-old father of two. At the time of the interview, he had a BAC of .43, which is borderline death. Don't cue perilous music again. Neil, unlike the others, admitted he had a problem. This guy Neil was drinking beer in his parking lot on a break during his grocery shift. Neil's gone to 12 treatment and detox centers in the last four years. Neil, unfortunately, is close to death. In this documentary, Neil goes to rehab. He gets 30 days of sobriety under his belt. You can see in his face he looks so much better. And you think, I'm watching TV. It's going to be a happy ending. Wait for it. Well, you're just going to have to see the documentary. Now, let's hear from our interviewee, Amelia. Amelia, how are you? I'm doing well, Paul. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Amelia, let's get right into it. When was your last drink? My last drink was October 9th, so my sober date is October 10th, 2016, so I have 79 days today. Boom. Nice job. 79 days. That's awesome. And we're doing this interview on December 28th. You made it through some pretty big days. One would be Thanksgiving. Number two would be Christmas. Nice job. Yeah, thanks. I'm proud of myself. (laughs) Yeah. Were there any close calls over the holidays? Thanksgiving, not so much. Christmas was a little bit more difficult. I found myself a lot more irritable. And interestingly enough, like I had a couple of times where everyone had gone to bed and I was like, I could really use a drink right now. And I was like, okay, why am I thinking this right now? I was in bed already, so I just decided I just need to go, I, need, I just need to sleep. So I just did that, and that was my close call. Wow, there was already so much in that one sentence that we could explore for the entire interview. But before we get any further, Amelia, let's learn a little bit more about you. Tell listeners maybe where where you live, what you do for a living. Mm-hmm. Do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? 
Yeah, so I was born and raised in San Francisco. Um, I'm 32 years old. I still live in San Francisco. I'm a social worker, I'm pretty close to getting my license in California, and I work for a nonprofit, and I work with kids who are in the foster care system, so pretty intense job, but I love what I do. I also, for fun, I love baseball, so I love watching my Giants play. I go to spring trainings, I go to games all the time when the season is in, and I travel a lot, too. I try to spend at least like a quarter of my year traveling, whether it be in the country or abroad. So those are my main things that I am passionate about. You know what? I have an admiration for avid baseball fans. And if you go to spring training, (laughs) then that would be you because you guys see something that I don't. I I see the best thing in a baseball game is a no-hitter, which is absolutely miserable to watch for myself. But for you, (laughs) it's the most exciting thing. And you can probably rattle off all the stats of the bullpen, right? I can do some, but I mean, I feel like for me, it's more just being kind of in the moment there, like spring training. It's like seeing all the up and coming guys that are going to be playing during the year. And so that's really exciting. And I get to be like really close and just, yeah, in the moment. In the moment. Key. I love it. I love it. We're getting some great content already. But Amelia, let me ask you this question. So you've been sober for 79 days. Was it 79 days Mm -hmm. ago that you first decided, wait a second, maybe I have a problem with alcohol or was it a long time ago? When did you first realize that you maybe didn't drink like a normal person? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't 79 days ago when I thought that it was way long ago, probably at least 10 years ago when I was like, huh, I think I might have a problem, but I kind of always justified it in my mind. So 79 days ago was kind of when I was like, you know what, I'm just sick and tired of basically being sick and tired, waking up every day, just feeling like crap, not necessarily always with a hangover, but just like my body being tired and just trying to say to myself, you know, today it's going to be different. Like I'm going to drink differently or I'm not going to drink at all. And I had made those resolutions in the past and never had had stuck to them. So 79 days ago, I did stick to it. Amelia, you and I kind of follow the same path. Right around age 22, I took a look left, look right, and I was like, wait a second, I might not drink like a normal drinker. And yeah, it was about nine and a half years later, I took my last drink. And I justified it for a long time. And tell me ways that you maybe justified it or maybe put rules into place. Like, look, I'm only drinking when the Giants are on a winning streak. (laughs) Well, I would justify that I had a really hard job and I deserved a drink after work. So that's how I kind of coped with the stress of my work. And so I would only drink after work. So I thought like, if I just drink at night, then I'm a normal drinker. Or if I just drink on the weekends, I'm a normal drinker. And I never really like really tried to regulate my drinking, but I think that's only because I never had any really severe consequences because of my drinking. And so in my mind, it was still justified for me to continue to drink the way I was. I mean, I would try to drink like, especially on the weekends, like after, like you said, after 5 p.m. or after 4 p.m. But then if I didn't, it would, you know, be a joke like, oh, it's five o'clock somewhere. Or if I was drinking (laughs) with other people. You break um, your rule. And it's amazing how fast we can justify A, breaking the rule and B, drinking more. Totally, totally. And towards the end of my drinking, it was like, I didn't even really care. I was just like, oh, it's a weekend. I deserve to drink like all day. Yeah. Yeah. I got to the point where I just stopped doing rules because 
I knew they were just going to be failed promises to myself. And you don't feel as bad about yourself when you don't fail your own promise. You just don't make the promise and learn that. So yeah. when would you say was your bottom? So my bottom, like I had a lot of bottoms. I was in the Peace Corps and basically got kicked out of the Peace Corps because of my drinking, but that wasn't Were you in the Peace Corps? Like, I was in the Eastern Caribbean, so that was in 2008. I left early, and I mean, this is probably one of the first times I'm actually saying that like out loud to somebody that I don't really know is that this happened, because it was one of the moments where it was a bottom for me, but I never really admitted it to to people still to this day I'm like yeah I was in the Peace Corps but I never say like I left early or why I left and it was other reasons other than my drinking as well but drinking definitely contributed that was a bottom for me do you, do you mind me asking what what happened in the Peace Corps with alcohol yeah so one specific incident happened where there, it was like Independence Day down there and we were all just like partying all day drinking all day I got really blackout drunk and decided I wanted to go home instead of what we pre-decided is going to a friend's house to spend the night. And so I decided to walk seven miles in the rain home. And this guy that lived kind of near me was like, I need to make sure you get home okay. So he walked with me, but was really upset with it, the whole incident, and like basically reported it. And so I, I wasn't kicked out then. I was moved to a different island but was basically told you're not allowed to drink. Like if you if you have a drinking problem, we can get you help. But I was denying it at that point. I was like, what are they talking about? Like this is just one time. I don't know what the big deal is, kind of thing. So I continued to drink, and I ended up spending time outside of the community that I lived in. And you're supposed to basically tell them at all times where you are, just for safety reasons. And I didn't, and that ended up me leaving because I already kind of had a strike against sure. me for the incident with drinking. So, Amelia, can you imagine the conversation that the Peace Corps committee had? Hey, what's up on the agenda next, Jim? Well, we've got this girl Amelia. You know, she's got you know she she got really drunk, and they're like, oh, I got a brilliant idea. Let's just put her on another island. That geographical cure works for everybody. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and my and of course in that period I was you know lying to my not only myself but you know when they're asking me how much I usually drink I'm like oh yeah you know like once in a while I'll have a couple beers when it was like no every day I was drinking. Yeah, in my mind I'm thinking right now you, know, you and the captain can make it happen in in you know it's like rum <laughs> is just contemporaneous with the Caribbean you can't even be there without a bottle of rum in your hand but I guess other people exactly. do that right. Right. Yeah. And so how did you do it? How did you do it 79 days ago? When you asked me about my bottom, like I had several bottoms on the way, but 79 days ago, nothing really big happened. Uh, October 9th is my parents' anniversary. So I had a phone call with them where I was like completely blackout drunk. And I don't remember the conversation I had with them on their anniversary. And I woke up on October 10th and I was like, you know what? I just like wasted an entire weekend inside on a beautiful San Francisco like Indian summer weekend where it was beautiful it was like blue angels were out and I was just at home drinking by myself and I was like do I really want to be this person anymore and I just said no and so I texted a friend who I used to work with and she had gotten sober maybe two years prior and I texted her and I was like hey I decided I'm going to AA today I just want to let you know and that I, you know, finally made this decision and she encouraged me to go. And I went to two meetings that day. And I think for me, 
what was different about this time was the accountability piece that we hear about a lot that I reached out to somebody and told them and was accountable to that person that like, hey, instead of just telling myself, I was telling somebody else. That's huge right there. And listeners, this is when the rubber hits the road is when you reach out to somebody else. I've been doing this podcast for a while now, and you can't do this alone. I've met people who have gotten sober without any 12-step programs, without any meetings. But the one thing we all have in common is that we can't do this alone. We've all had a lot of help. You texted a friend, and then you said the magical word, which has been paramount for me in my recovery, is accountability. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I actually had a conversation with this girl um, like a year before about like, hey, I think I might have a problem. What should I do? So she had already always been supportive of me. So that's why I chose Mm -hmm. her to reach out to. And also, I mean, I was accountable not only to myself, but I, I talked to my mom too a couple of days later and I was like, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Just so I was like putting it out there because I thought if I'm just telling myself this, then it's just going to be like it every other time that I tell myself that I'm going to stop drinking or cut back on my drinking. And I need to kind of change my patterns. And this is the one way right now that I know how to do that is to tell other people what I'm trying to do. Yeah, telling my mom was like major for me because of what she said when, when I told her, which was, hey, I went to Al-Anon like a year ago because of you. Wow. And she had never told me that. And so that was like super impactful to me because I had never realized that. I never really realized that how much I impacted my immediate family, even though we had had conversations before about my drinking. But, so you weren't really necessarily but, flying under the radar. Right, which I, I totally, which a lot of us do, thought, thought I was, thought I was blending in just fine. And because I was at home most of the time at the end of my drinking, I figured I wasn't really causing too many waves. But when she said that, I was kind of blown away. I was like, wow, I never realized. And that also shows me another thing. Number one, we keep this secret so close to our vests, and I did this for nearly a decade due to the stigma. For some reason, I also thought when I told my brother, my mom, and dad, I was terrified that they would stop their love for me. But right there, mm-hmm. her telling you, I, I went to Al-Anon, it shows that we are wrong in two ways. Number one, the stigma, they didn't run for the hills. And number two, they're so caring. Like she went to a meeting for you just to understand it better. Our loved ones are so supportive and we expect them to read our minds. I actually interviewed my brother on this podcast. Right. We talked about times. I was like, hey, Mark, remember that one time? He's like, no, dude, I, I don't because you didn't tell me about this. Yeah. yeah. And then that's when I started to get sober, when I started to tell people. I actually want to backtrack just a little bit here. I said, yeah. you know, when was your bottom? You said, oh, my God, I had so many. And that's a huge one right there is every bottom has a trap door. And again, you can just put down the shovel at any time and stop digging. But that's hard. What was it like when you kept having bottoms over and over and over? Yeah, I never thought they were deep enough because for me, they weren't. I mean, getting out of the Peace Corps, definitely I would consider looking back today sober as a crazy deep bottom. But I looked at it from a different point of view, like, oh, it was because of the second, you know, being outside of my community that really got me kicked out. It wasn't because of the drinking that led up to me moving islands that led to da 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 da, you know? So I always looked at it from a different angle. Like I, a year ago, I hit a parked car coming home from the bar and I could have gotten arrested. I could have lost my life or like lost my job because I have to have a license for my job. I could have lost a lot of things. And luckily I 
the police didn't get called on me. Nothing really serious happened. So I was like, hey, I just won't. I'll be more conscious about taking Uber when I go out, if I go out, you know, versus like maybe I have a problem with drinking and I should just stop altogether. So I think for me, it's just like, oh, nothing really got taken away from me that really hit, like I hit bottom. And I'm sure like those seem like low bottoms maybe for some people, but I'm sure even if I had done something even worse, like I would have justified it in some way. Sure. I don't want to correct you on anything, but I think the term for that is a high bottom drunk. And I myself as well as a high bottom drunk. And let me ask you this question. And let me answer the question myself first is for me, it's the yet scale is I don't have a D a felony DUI yet. That's where I get my fourth, right? I only have mm-hmm. one. I have not been to prison mm-hmm. dot, dot, dot yet. I have not been divorced right. by my wife dot, dot, dot yet. I got to get a girlfriend first, but you get the point on that one. <laughs> Yeah. Now, how, how do you feel yeah. if, if you drink again? You're like, you know what? I've already experienced enough bottoms. I'm good. What do you think no, will happen? I mean, I totally agree with you. I think it'll be, it's not a matter of will it happen. It's just when. And that's something that I keep telling myself that, yeah, if I go back out, then it'll be, it'll be when it happens, when those, those bottoms happen, when I, when I crash my brand new car that I was fortunate to get after I crashed my old car when I will freaking lose my license that I worked, you know, for five years to get, you know, and I don't want those yets to happen. I want the yets to happen when I get, you know, married and have kids and like hike, you know, Mount Everest. Or, yeah, you want you the know, good yets to happen. To... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I was tired of all the like the bad yets. So I'm waiting for those. So, yeah, that's yeah. a great way to look at it because there's a whole lot of yets awaiting both of us in sobriety. And mm-hmm. I, can, I can guarantee you a lot more yets are coming your way. And what is yeah. your plan in sobriety? I mean, how are you doing it on a day-to-day basis? Walk me through your plan for day 80. Yeah. So I have, AA was my first kind of exit out of drinking. And so I went to two meetings my first day and that's been working for me. I don't go to meetings every single day, but I try to get to at least a couple a week. I took up a commitment at one of those meetings. So I have a commitment every Wednesday where I make coffee. A commitment, a.k.a. accountable. Exactly. I'm there every Wednesday making the coffee. I messed up the first couple of times, but I, I, you know, I hear from other, from other old timers that it's not about actually making the coffee, but like what, what you get, the accountability part, exactly what you said. There you go. Um, Being there every Wednesday and, and, you know, talking to others that are in the program. So that's been working for me. Kind of the cliche of taking one day at a time has really worked for me a lot. So I'm just going to keep doing it that way. Also follow it when I do have cravings or when I do have, you know, when I want to drink. Um, I tell myself, like, I, I follow the drunk. I don't know if people have heard that, but instead of like looking at just like, oh, how good that first drink will taste, I follow it all the way because I know it's not going to be just that one drink. So I follow it to like, no, it's not going to be that one drink. I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to probably do something stupid or pass out or whatever. And I'm going to wake up tomorrow and feel shitty that that happened. I love Um, this technique. What do you call it? You say you follow the drunk? Yeah. And I think it's a term, I, I, I don't want to take credit for it because I think I read it, in, I want to say I read it in like Living Sober, but yeah, it's it's a chapter in one of the AA books, but it, you, you kind of follow the whole whole consequence of one drink out. 
and that's that's what I've been doing when I when I get gotten urges. I love that, and I love the way it's coined. You know, follow the drunk. You know, whoever came up with it. Yeah, we fantasize and we glorify that first drink. We obsess over finding a way to drink like a normal person. But just like you said, what I do now in recovery, and it's become a habit of mine, I instantly think to the next morning, hey, I'm going to feel like shit because I was not going to be able to stop after one drink. Yeah, and I just keep going down that the pathway of the drink. And you know, pretty soon I'm behind the wheel of a car. Pretty soon this happens. Pretty soon, you know, the Broncos are just, it's just, it's just all downhill. Just like you said, right. I love that. I love that. All right, keep going. Yeah, so those are my main plans. Also, I think the accountability piece, like I, so I signed up for the RE retreat in August. So, I mean, that's a quite a bit of ways away. And so I feel like that'll keep me accountable until that date too, because I want, I want to have, you know, almost a year sober when I, when I go to that retreat and be, you know, farther along in my journey and farther along in my recovery. I haven't, I also haven't started working the steps yet with my sponsor and I'm really kind of itching to start doing that because I'm feeling kind of, I don't know, a little bit anxious. So I feel like I need to start actually doing the work that led me to drink in the first place, you know, work on myself. So It sounds like you're ready to start experiencing emotional sobriety, which is more than just not drinking and addressing the physical, the spiritual, and the mental component of the addiction. And like I said, I've done a lot of these interviews and it sounds like you're ready to do this and you are serious. You know, you got 80 days on your yeah. belt. That's a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. I, I feel good. I feel good. So. Yeah. And, and with 80 days of sobriety, 79. Okay. 79. Oh yeah. I gotta, I gotta yeah. say one more thing about the one day at a time. I've done a full yeah. pendulum shift on that for the first, you know, first four to five months, obviously the first month, it was like one minute, one hour, one day at a time. That's how I live my life. And then I hit one year sobriety um, I even interviewed a guy in the podcast and he was like, he's, uh, I recall, he goes, if your program says one day at a time, you need to find a new program. And I was like, boom. And then I just threw it out the window. I was like, I didn't, I didn't like that phrase, but now I'm right back at it. Not to say that I'm close to a drink, but one day at a time, like I, I just don't need to be thinking about anything. And I, I apply that principle to my diet, to my exercise routine, to my work. It, that's it. I can only focus on what I'm doing right now and being in the moment. And a question for you with 79 days in recovery, what have you learned most about yourself, Amelia? Oh, that's a good question. What have I learned most about myself? I think that I can be happy without without drinking. I, I think for a long time I felt that my happiness was connected to getting home and having a drink and feeling kind of that relief that that drink brought. But I've been through the holidays. I've been through, you know you know, some celebrations that I've been happy at and genuinely happy and then can remember the next day. I didn't want to like leave and go home and drink. I wasn't like looking forward to that, which a lot of times when I would go out with friends before when I was drinking, I would drink only a certain amount and then just, just be anxious to get home so I could really, really start drinking at home alone. And so I think what I've learned is, yeah, I, I can be happy without that. And you know, have a great life without, like a better life without, without alcohol. And so I am going to voice what a lot of listeners just said to themselves was, whoa, 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 Amelia, you're telling me I can be happy without alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you can. And if anyone is a 
surprised as me saying that it's myself. I, I mean, <laughs> I, love I, it. Yeah, yeah, I was also can. surprised he had about 40 days in. I was like, wait a second. I'm not really thinking about alcohol right now. I don't feel like jumping off a high ledge and life is fairly enjoyable. Yep. And what advice would you give to your younger self? I think it would be to, I guess, look at those bottoms and realize for what they were. Because 2008, what that's like almost 10 years ago now, that was a really low bottom at a long time ago that I feel like I didn't really recognize that as the bottom until I was preparing for this interview. So I would really encourage myself to like go back and look. Also heeding the, like my mom told me from when I was young about alcoholism and how it ran in my family. And I never really uh. listened to that. I remember like moments from my childhood when my grandfather was drunk and, you know, he'd always feed me cocktail onions from his cocktails when I was little. And I just never really listened to my mom when she would say, hey, like, this is a problem, so watch out. And she would say that to me from a young age before I ever started drinking. And so I would say to my, my younger self, like, hey, look at the way you're drinking. This is not normal. Alcoholism runs in your family. You might be an alcoholic, even though you may not think so. And your mom sounds like a saint. Let me just tell you that. But she's she's up against some serious odds because, yeah, she'll before you leave the door, say, hey, you know, be careful. It runs in her family about the alcohol component. And then I think you see it like 35 to 40 times a day subliminally just in magazines yeah. and apps, on phones, on you know, TVs and commercials. Yeah, that's what your mom's going up against. She can only say it a couple times a, a year, a month, a day. But then she's got to go against that. Um, but bless her heart for giving it a go. Many, you know, most people yeah. don't even try that. And Amelia, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Sure. All right, Amelia, number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? I think probably the Peace Corps moment was probably my worst memory or the night that I, I hit a parked car and I got yelled at by two people who threatened to call the cops and luckily the cops weren't called and I walked home because it was two blocks away from my house that I hit a parked car. Gotcha. And we've all heard of that aha moment. Have you ever had an oh shit moment indicating you can't control your drinking? Yeah. One was when I went, I used to work overnight shifts and I went to work that uh, at 9 p.m. one night after drinking the whole day after the work the night before and one of my clients said hey you smell like alcohol and I was like oh that's because I just put hand sanitizer on my hand <laughs> yeah okay okay yeah that makes sense <laughs> how much hand sanitizer do you put on your hand <laughs> exactly uh, I love it and what is your favorite resource in recovery I think for me it's been AA I feel like I, well, I never leave a meeting feeling worse than when I entered, and that's been paramount for me. Also, that's a, that's a big advice yeah. right there. That's that's a pretty solid statement, and, and just yeah, yeah, just li listeners, just listen to what she said right there because that is totally true. Your your emotional state will not decline during that hour, and oftentimes it rises. So great answer, totally. I love. It. And then in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? And then before we depart, give listeners some advice to them if they would like to quit drinking or they're in early recovery. Sure. I think the best advice was what I said before, following 
the drunk and not just the, the high of the first drink. And then the serenity prayer has really got, got to me. So accepting the things I can't change, having the courage to change what I can and the wisdom to know the difference has meant a lot to me and helped me. And advice that I would give, I think just being gentle with yourself if you're in early recovery, even if you're far into recovery, just realizing that it is an addiction, you're going to have your highs and lows, and it's not always going to be a linear process. It's not going to be easy, but that's true for all change. Change is not always easy. And so give yourself permission to feel the emotions that come um, and take care of yourself as needed. If that means, you know, sleeping for nine hours one night, 10 hours one night, do that. It means having that extra piece of cake because you're just feeling the feels, then do that. Or if it means, I don't know, going out with friends and laughing, do that. Whatever you need to to be okay and to to not not go to alcohol. Amelia, I had to learn this lesson the day before I had two years of sobriety, which was be kind to myself and be easy on myself. Little did I know I had risen the bar just ever so slightly with each day in sobriety that there's no way I was ever going to achieve it. And it is 10.08 a.m. right now, Amelia. After we conclude mm-hmm. this interview, I'm going to go home and take a nap. Yep. And it's a Wednesday. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> I'm going to be kind to myself. I'm tired today. And yeah. that's totally fine. And I'm going to end yeah. this morning segment on a high note by talking with you. And be, this is being my part of my recovery as well. So I got to say thank you for that. And before we go, you got to give listeners mm-hmm. your own customized. You might be an alcoholic if line, Amelia. Okay. Well, I have a few if that's okay. Oh, let's do it. There were, you know, a few. So one, you get kicked out of the Peace Corps. Two, you work overnight and drink in the day after your shift and totally just, justify that. Mm-hmm. Three, um, this is embarrassing, you pee in your bed when you're passed out. Mm-hmm. Four, you pretend to feel, fill your glass with water after getting ice in the kitchen, but then fill it with vodka when you get to your room so no one thinks that you're drinking early, that early. Let me check my answer key. Check, 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 and check. Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Perfect 100%. Nice job on that one. Amelia, thank you so much for joining us. Can't wait to meet you in person at the retreat. It's yeah. going to be a lot of fun. It's basically going to be like a summer camp. And anyway, before we go, one more question. How are the Giants going to do this next year? Oh, my gosh. It's an odd year, but I feel, I feel the magic. I just bought my tickets for spring training this morning, my flight to Phoenix, and so I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm going to bring them some luck. Whoa, whoa! You, you, you're, you're, you bought a plane ticket to go to spring training. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I did. It was uh, my my. I have an app called Hopper that tells me when I should buy tickets, and I've been watching watching my flights. I got a the go ahead this morning to go ahead and buy it, so I did. That is so cool. I, I think the only thing I cared that much about was, was alcohol. <laughs> so I'm jealous. <laughs> Let's put it that way. That is so awesome. I hope uh, the magic rides off to the pennant. I don't even know what any of that means, but uh, thank you so much, Amelia. Have a great day. You too. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast and during Amelia's interview, follow the drunk. This is a very powerful device. You cannot think your way through this disease, but you can think your way in a linear fashion of what will happen if you take a drink. Our addiction, mine is named Gary. He's always chirping at me in my own voice lying. Thank you, Gary, for that. He's not going away. That's fine. He's always trying to glorify that drink, the part before the drink. And he does a pretty good job of glorifying the part right after the drink. But 
when I can get my cahoots under me, I can say, wait a second, Gary, that's not really how it's going to go. You know how I know that? It's because about 542 times, it's been the exact opposite of the way you're describing it, Gary. So dude, Gary, step off. Seriously, just think about it. You're at that party. You're looking at that drink. What is going to happen? Just ask yourself objectively, what will happen if you drink? Think about that night. Think about the first drink. What happens when you put the bottle on the table? That drink is done. Because I know you just told yourself you're only going to have one. What happens after that? You're still at the party. Did the lights go on? The party's over? No, you're most likely, and I can only speak from my experience, you're probably going to grab another one. What's going to after that? You've already told yourself, okay, well, I've had one. Now I'm only going to have just one more. Keep following the drunk. That glass hits the table. Clink, number three, number four. Then maybe you're driving, maybe you're Ubering, maybe you're walking, maybe you're staying somewhere where you shouldn't be staying. What happens the next morning? How do you feel? Does the emotional beatdown you're about to give yourself, is that going to take place? I know it would for me. How bad is the hangover? If my hangover was that bad, it wasn't, I'm going to go play with my dog, Ben. I'm going to drink the hair of the dog. So now it's the next day. It's 8 a.m. for me, and I'm still drinking. Uh-oh, not good. This guy, Gary, my addiction, he was totally wrong about how that first drink was going to go. F you, Gary. Follow that drink all the way until the end. It got scary for me at the end. If I took that first drink, I would binge drink for four or five days. Yep, four to five days. This disease is progressive. So that is a powerful, powerful tool. You can actually objectively think your way through what will happen if you drink. And you're usually pretty accurate on that one. So Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. I hope to see all of you guys at the retreat there in August. We can do this. 